0: Welcome to the Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when
1: citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as
0: we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Dr Rad and I are super thrilled to welcome Associate Professor Rebecca Fudo Kennedy to the show. Uh, Professor Rebecca Fido Kennedy teaches in classical studies, women and gender studies, and environmental studies at Denison University. Kennedy holds a BA in classical studies, an MA in Greek and Latin, and completed her PhD on the representation of Athena in the tragedies of Aeschylus and Sophocles at Ohio State University. Kennedy's most recent monograph is entitled Immigrant Women in Athens, Gender, Ethnicity and Citizenship in the Classical City. And it's the subject of Athenian women and non-Athenian women that will be the subject of the conversation that we have today. So thank you so much for joining us, Rebecca.
2: Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the uh, the logistics of scheduling with such fast time zone differences. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah i was looking at it today it's like a 14 hour time difference so it's somewhat of a miracle that we mathematically were able to work it out at all to be honest
2: <laughs> well i i know i i know maybe we should have scheduled while i was in greece Definitely, Um,
1: to get us started on this subject of athenian women and also non-athenian women I want to talk to you about language as a first step because it's a really important window onto how we understand society. And this is true as much today as it was in ancient Greece. Words carry certain connotations and they start to reveal certain values to us and senses of community start to emerge from that usage as well. So as a first step, I wanted to ask you about what are some of the terms that are used for women in ancient Greece? How are women socially coded?
2: Yeah, it's actually a really interesting thing. One of the things I discovered back when I was a graduate student many, many years ago is that there is no word for woman, um, default. You have the word anthropos, which is the word for either man or human, and you can throw a feminine article in front of it, but it's actually very rarely done. Um, we see it in medical texts when you're really just talking about a body, right? or the female, like there's a word for female, but that works for humans and non-humans alike. So the fact that you don't really have a general word um, to just say woman is, is of course a quite interesting thing. So what you actually have are a series of words that basically code them by um, marital status or relationship to children, so the word Parthenos, for example, um, which we often translate as virgin, actually doesn't mean virgin. It's an unmarried girl who hasn't had a child yet. Um, so it's like you can't actually, the, the problem is you have to think about what the word means versus how you translate it. And there's always a gap between there because for translations, we always look for, you know sort of pithy, like one word or a short phrase. Uh, and this inevitably warps what the word actually means in context, right? So, Parthenos uh, is for your sort of younger set. These are the girls who would wear their hair down and um, wear sleeveless tunics and um, often short tunics. But it's really for unmarried girls. And one of the things that that some scholars have talked about is that you don't switch over to being a gune, which is the word that we is. They often translate it as woman, but it really means wife. Is it's childbirth that actually does the transition, not marriage versus um, not married. It's it's once. You, once you have a child, that, that's your sort of coming of age. And that usually would have occurred uh, in Athens, which is different from other cities, sometime around 14 or 15 or 16. Um, that's sort of the zone for marriage for girls. Um, we would consider that child marriage now. But this is this is just, this. it was basically, okay, they have had puberty and now it's like a little bit out. So your Parthenos is, you know, a 13 to 14 year old. Um, And then by the time she sort of gets married and has her first child, then she would switch to being gune. And then you have um, widows, which is pretty easy to code. (laughs) You have um, a word for old women, which isn't necessarily have any, that's one of the ones that's really like the grouse. Um, It doesn't actually have much to do with marriage status or not marriage status, it's just old. (laughs) So so it's sort of that, Um, right? Just old people. Um, But when you see it in context, it's often used of formerly enslaved women. Um, So you'll see it in like the Odyssey of the Old Nurse um, of Odysseus, um, or in tragedy of these older former nannies, um, former wet nurses, um, characters. Um, And then you have a series of words that are for people who are outside of the marriage track. Um, and those can be super confusing. So one of them is the word palakis or palake. Um, there's actually two spelling of the word. And that word is often translated as concubine. And the reason why it is translated that way is because our dictionaries are made in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Um,
0: right. Damn, there's
2: Victorians. <laughs> yeah. So they refer to them because it appears in Herodotus in the context of, In one particular context of of the Persian harem, and so it gets coded as concubine. But then you see it in lots of different Greek contexts and Roman Greek contexts. So um, we have some Roman era inscriptions um, in which the word appears that are actually probably temple attendants, because it's a a generational inscription at a temple, saying you know thanking the the goddess (laughs) and. Stephanie Boudin has argued, um, based on the context for this, that these can't have been generations of concubines in the same family, or uh, sometimes scholars will just say, oh, it just means prostitute. Like everything is code for prostitute if it's not wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? and, so, um, and so it seems to actually be a, an attendant or a companion to the goddess, right, as, as you will. And then you see it in Athenian context where you'll see it in tragedy to refer to Andromache and so this idea that she's the concubine of um, Achilles' son, Neoptolemus, um, in the play. But, and then you see, it. I found it on a tombstone, <laughs> which is super rare. And I think well, it has to be that, because there's only a couple of words that go. It's, it's You're missing letters. We're missing some major letters. <laughs> so apparently, when the tomb was first studied, um, published in the 1920s, there were more letters there. But it's in the Piraeus Museum, and who knows, you know, during World War II, they hid all the objects and tried to like hide all the objects and strap all the objects down when the Nazis were not marching in. And so I'm sure damage occurred to some of the objects but there's a big hole where there used to be a letter. <laughs> so, um, so I'm pretty sure it says Polakis because the only other option is really Polakis, which just means often and you wouldn't put that on your tombstone to list your status in relationship to a man. I am often of a man, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just not gonna work. So translation halakus here and also in some other contexts in Athenian um, court speeches, suggests that the term also means a contracted relationship. So a, not, a marriage-like relationship for people who can't actually contract a marriage. Some scholars have argued that it's a dowerless um, relationship Um, But most of the ones that I found are of non-citizen women in a relationship. But there was a law in Athens um, that goes back, apparently, to Solon, where this particular type of woman, um, it was a legally binding contract and children were considered legitimate. Even if they weren't citizens, they were still legitimate children. So arguments have been made that these were um, enslaved women typically, but they wouldn't have been able to have legitimate children. Um, with, an, with their owner, um, with their enslaver, if it was such. So I think there's a, that word has like three different meanings, but everybody conflates it to concubine thanks to our dictionaries. And then, of Absolutely. course, probably the most well-known and most um, contentious one is hetaira, which everybody translates as courtesan, which is not necessarily, again, 19th century dictionary, I, you know, often I ask my students, like, do you know what a concubine is? Do you know what a courtesan is? And they're like, no idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like, what's the fine grain of nuance there for the 19th century that we're missing?
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and and if, in, the, in the shade, it seems to be between those two words in the 19th century is one is a Turkish woman <laughs> in the Ottoman Empire, right? It's foreign. And one is your, your sort of grand horizontale, your <laughs> um, Devimand, um girlfriend or something. Um, but that's the 19th century,
1: <laughs> not,
2: you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> how do we get that into ancient Athens, really? <laughs> yeah.
0: Absolutely. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how the definition
2: of hetaira has changed over time. Yeah, it's it's a funny one, too, because it got coded in the 19th century by our lexicon writers, you know, uh, Liddell and Scott and Jones, um, as courtesan. But in, like, 1929, Gong wrote an article that was like, there was no like training finishing school for like fine courtesans and Athens, like no such thing. Like, you know, so even in the 1920s, people were like, this is ridiculous. Um, but it got really picked up in the 1980s um, by feminist scholars in the field as part of a movement to sort of bring forth scholarship of non-elite women. And so this whole industry basically developed around Um, studying prostitution in the ancient world. Part of this is part of the modern movement to destigmatize sex work. But what they ended up doing was taking all these women who are called hetaira uh, in any context, even being called this thing by people who are attacking them in court, (laughs) right? And treating it as a status category, first off. And then treating a courtesan as an independent, um, educated woman as if they were sort of looking for, you know, someone like um, these 19th century women who often were able to live outside of marriages and uh, and held salons and things, you know, in Paris um, and in London. I often think of a good example is um, Elizabeth Armitage, who ended up marrying, you know, a former prime minister and had so many legacies left to her by her former um, partners that she was able to buy her own house in the countryside and sort of lived out her life um, happily married to the man of her dreams uh, to an aristocrat you know et cetera. so they sort of imagined this grand courtesan educated liberated and they used aspasia as the sort of model for this basically misunderstanding Athenian law and believing plutarch who 700 years after she had lived Basically said that she held a she ran a harem in Pericles' house after telling us that Pericles was so worried about public opinion that he wouldn't even go to parties and drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but this so, over here, this is fine. Yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is a harem. Like she's she's running a she's running a, a brothel out of his living room. But um, <laughs> you don't but, have one of these. You mm, gotta get one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it's where all the girls go to get educated. Um, yes. <laughs> right. So everybody became a hetaira. And then of course we had this famous article in the nineties from Leslie Kirk, which is like inventing the hetaira, where she like makes this grand distinction between the porne and the hetaira. Oh, porne is another word for women, which she classified as the sort of streetwalker, sort of uh, the, the, the really poor lower-class sex worker versus the hetaira who was the high-class one. You know, you look in these dictionaries and these words have like one word listed, the new Cambridge lexicon actually has a really nice full definition of hetaira that takes into consideration the last like three decades, four decades of scholarship. So that's one nice thing that they, they've done in that. But you see that like, the word appears in Sappho, and it refers to um, Artemis and Hera as like hetairai. So clearly they're not courtesans, <laughs> so it has to mean something else. So one of the things that you see is that in earlier texts, a lot of context, it probably just means girlfriends, as in your friends who are girls, on the equivalent of the word to tyros, which is your buddies that you hang out with and drink with um, at parties. And we actually had this whole class of women in the sort of early 5th century, late 6th century in Athens, who were like the wives and sisters and daughters of the wealthiest of the wealthy, people like Pisistratus' daughter, Corsaira. People like Elpinike, who was Miltiades, the general's daughter, and the sister of Chio, and she was married to the wealthiest man in Athens. They're not courtesans, but they're we, you know, they're clearly public figures, and we have inscriptions referring to them, ostracism inscriptions, like they want their husbands or their brothers or their sons to be kicked out of the city. And They're like, take your mother with you, or, take your sister with you, <laughs> um, uh, and so they, they and they have all these rumors, they have bad reputations, like. El Panique supposedly, like, was having an affair with Polygnotis, the painter, all this oh, scandal, and there's actually a vase painting in the Naples Museum storage facility that at one point had her name carved on it, a painting a painting by Polygnotis <laughs> that goodness. shows a, a woman playing a flute while dancing, girls are dancing, and a man is looking on, and someone's like, this is a brothel scene. It's like, it's probably a music school or a school for young girls, Um <laughs> like it's a brothel yeah this is a bit like
1: it's pillow fights at a slumber party and it's like that's not what the girls are doing <laughs>
2: well it was it sort of reminds me though of um a famous painting by jerome called greek interior which mm. basically has a bunch of of greek odalesque style women like you know aphrodite the median aphrodite posed women like all standing around naked with each other um in their bedroom it's like yeah this is what happened in the interiors of the Phoebe homes right yeah as you do yep. That's why no one else is allowed inside. <laughs> but what's interesting about the word hataira is that by the fourth century, we see it showing up in oratory and on the comic stage. In the comic stage, it seems to refer to, uh, I would translate it as girlfriend, like a girl you date, but you can't marry or that you wouldn't marry. It's like the kind of girl you wouldn't take home to mom. And, <laughs> <laughs> right? but then uh, in the orations, it's often an accusation. And so it seems to have this, by the time you get to this, to the fourth century, it seems to carry the connotation of it could be sex worker, but it could also just be a sort of all around disreputable woman. I often translate it when I see it um, as whore, because it sort of captures the negative connotation. Like the one thing you have to talk to think about when you deal with this kind of material is it isn't actually about sex work um, when you're dealing in the orations, right? It's actually about People who are trying to attack these women and make their lives miserable, and in some cases have them sold into enslavement. So it can't be, you can't translate hetaira as sex worker. And the idea that they're calling these women hetaira, they can't be these like high class respectable courtesans, educated women. That's got to be imaginary. These are women who are um, outside of the marriage circuit for some reason or other, and women whose, te- uh, whose status within the city is really tentative and fraught and, and very dangerous. Um, that they can be open to these attacks. So it, it sort of moves and, and loses this sort of meaning of like, you know, goddesses hanging out with each other, <laughs> you know, rich girls hanging out with each other. But I almost feel like um, if you follow the evidence around that the, the things that we see that happen, because about, you know, seven centuries later in the second sophistic with people like Lucian and Athenias and Plutarch, you see, you know, st- you know Athenias' dinner parties, all of these like, you know, courtesans, quote-unquote, hanging out, and same thing with Lucian, his satire, The Chattering Courtesans, that there's this imaginary past in Athens in the fifth century that they're imagining in the 2nd century CE of the Grand Salon and of all these sort of women sitting around, educated and witty, you know, women sitting around that you can all, like, drop in and, and dine with, you know, and you sort of have, you know, Socrates being able to sort of, like, drop in and, and, uh, <laughs> and have a conversation, so you have this sort of imaginary world that the word—that's where it really gets this meaning, I think, of the courtesan as we imagine it in the 19th century. It—that's not in our earlier texts. But what you actually have is a bunch of probably rich women who partied it up and and were pretty public figures and like sort of pushed against the boundaries of what was acceptable behavior. And then by the time you get to the 4th century, that word, that that behavior, is like being you no. Know, and then these are women who. Have no choice but to be in public, right? And so they're they're sort of um, hitting them with this accusation of being publicly available women, um, as it were.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating because it kind of flies in the face of I suppose the popular image of what an Athenian citizen woman would do in her in her life. I mean, we usually have this image of them being highly secluded and very modest, and
2: you know, really really towing the line. Yeah, I mean that's rich which women probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, there's a there's a double-edged sword there. So and, and this is one of the things that you learn when you read oration um, and spend a lot of time trying to deal with Athenian inheritance law, is that because um, married women were expected to remain mostly within the the compound of the home, right? I mean, most weeding probably took place outside. They weren't like stuck in a bedroom or like in locked in a quarters. Um, you set up the big looms out on your Outdoor space because they're like six feet, eight feet, and you can't just like take that down when you're going to go to bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, in the summertime, and when weather was appropriate, they would set them up outside. And then there's also evidence of like women going to each other's houses in their neighborhoods, right? So, they weren't like completely secluded, but they always had a companion with them of some sort. And they did veil when they went out in public if you were a married woman. So, it's like if you went to a ritual an important ritual or something, or you went out to visit a grave, it was your duty to go out and visit a grave, you would wear a veil. But then you have this whole world of women <laughs> who actually fill public spaces. But in the inheritance cases, what happens is that, so ma- marriages are mismatched, right? So you got a guy who's like, originally, original marriage might be, first marriage for a man might be 35 or 40, and the girl's like 15, right? Well, guy wants a second marriage, maybe his wife died in childbirth, right? And so he marries again and he's married another 15-year-old and now he's, you know, 50, right? And so you have these mismatching ages. So you see these inheritance cases where there's a woman, a young woman with a, an infant or a small child who inherits, the child is inheriting, right? And it's coming through the marriage with a woman. And they're trying to attack the woman to prove like distant cousins all come out of the woodwork. And they're like, <laughs> they're just like magically appearing cousins. And they are trying to prove that this woman is in fact not the wife, of this person. In some cases, they're trying to prove that the woman never doesn't exist. Like, you, you, you claim citizenship to your grandmother, but that woman never existed. Because what happens is that these women live their lives separated off from the public spaces. They're not presented to the deems for citizen registration. There are no records of their citizenship. Um, you have the option, if you're like super wealthy guy, you might present your wife or your daughter to your tribe. Um, but that's a sep- that's not a civic organization. It's a more of a kinship group. Um, and so everything is dependent on witnesses, and there are no witnesses because all your witnesses are like 70 years old, and you know, <laughs> um, and they've died by the time you're you're inheriting or your child is inheriting this. And there's nobody to witness their lives because neither women sh- nor children nor the enslaved count as witnesses. They don't count. <laughs> so it has to be adult citizen men. So there's a, it's a double-edged sword where you have this whole class of women who are public and outside who are denigrated for that very thing. And then you have the women who are where property moves through in the city who are constantly in a precarious status if they don't have male protectors because their lives are um, meant to be lived in private. So I think this really heads in
1: towards this idea of like, how do we understand where women sort of sit In Athenian society, because we've got these like fine grade distinctions for citizen women, where it seems like the situation that you've just described to us is like even when they are doing everything right, and let's say that they're living a relatively secluded life, they've entered marriage at the appropriate age, they're not seen that much in public, but when they go into public, they veil themselves. Nobody has a chance to really witness what is going on. Is one woman just simply replaceable for another in that kind of scenario. Like how do you distinguish individuality if they're never really properly seen? And, and if they don't have brothers that might also be looking after them in some way and they don't survive for whatever reason, it seems hugely problematic. Um, But there are other categories as well. And you've hinted at some of them already. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on it. Like we see things like citizen women, but we've also hinted at that there are non-citizen women. There's definitely poor women and there's enslaved women and what sort of positions are we thinking about within if we're thinking holistically about Athenian society and what it looks like for women what are the sort of realms they inhabit
2: yeah so one of the things that's important is that women were in public everywhere we talk about public versus private but it doesn't mean isolated in, in, a, in a space in a house right um versus being outside when we talk about public spaces, we mean civic spaces. So like women were not allowed to go within a certain zone within the Agora, right? Foreigners were not allowed to go in, oh, the only citizen men could go in, but that was not the space where the markets were necessarily or where houses were, that's the space where the assembly um, administration building was, right? So, you know, there are fountain houses in what we call the Athenian Agora today, but the boundary stones for what counts as the Agora civic space versus the agora generally is very different. So we have to remember that women will be outside. So for unmarried girls, um, they do go to the fountain houses. They, you know, they do go to, to public rituals. They're not veiled. They're not um, hidden away. And then once you have your first child, so there's this really um, interesting speech, uh, Lysias I, uh against Eratosthenes. And um, Eratosthenes was caught um, having an affair with the speaker's wife, um, and the law in Athens is that if you are caught having an affair, if you're caught in the act in bed with your someone's wife, he can kill you on the spot. And this is a this the family brings the lawsuit though because he didn't kill Aristotle's in bed. He learned that his wife had a guest over, and the the thing we learn about is the setup of the house and how this sort of structures. Um, he goes and gets witnesses, brings them back, and then kills him as he's getting out of bed. And so the family sues and says, well, it's not. In the act so you committed murder so it's on on the murder of eratosnys and uh, but what we learn in there is that um he tells the story of how his wife got freedoms basically to he's like well you know we married and then you know she was a good girl and my mother lives in the house so she had to live with her mother-in-law so just imagine a space where you, where your father is like 90 and your mother is like 35 <laughs> and so um, your mother's 40 or you know whatever so you these women are going to be because the marriage age mismatches there's going to be a lot of (laughs) mother-in-laws with their young wives. and you know as we learn from things like Xenophon's text this idea is that the older woman would train the younger woman to run a household right kind of thing so she's living with her mother-in-law she's behaving herself mother-in-law goes out with her whenever she goes somewhere and then she has her first child right so she has the first child and at that point, he decides that it's okay for her. She's proven herself, basically. So it's okay for her to like, she's become a, a proper Gune. She's no longer a Parthenos. So she can do stuff. And one thing she does, though, is that she, so we hear in this text that she goes over to a neighbor's house at night to get candles. You know, my, our, our wax burnt out, so I needed to go get, or my wick burnt down. So I had to go to the neighbor's house and borrow a wick um, or something, right? So we learned that they have this sort of mobility around the neighborhoods, right? Um, And then we also learn that he uh, actually switched bedrooms with her. So we often imagine the women's quarters on the second floor, the door locked from the outside, uh, not from the inside, but he swapped with her because the baby didn't live in the room with her. The baby was downstairs with, with others, and she needed to be able to move back and forth to nurse at night. So he switched bedrooms with her, and he moved into the upstairs room, and she moved into the downstairs room. But so what we well we get a picture of a household in in this text. So we also learn about the other women who live in the house, some of whom would have been enslaved, but some of whom were not. So one of the main characters is this old woman who used to work for the household but doesn't anymore. And she's now free. Um and she's the one who rats the wife out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> rats her out to the husband. Uh, but also we learned that the wife met Eratosthenes at a funeral with her mother, like she went with her mother-in-law to a funeral, and that's where she, where Eratosthenes first met her and saw her, behind her veil, um, and this is when they began their affair. So it's a sort of tale, but you start, of all these little details. There's like, there's the, these women who live in the houses, right, then there's their neighbors and the people who live in their neighborhoods, and they're all going to have varying levels of status and income, Right. Some of the houses are two stories. Some of them are only one story, right? Um, depending on, on um, who you are and where you are. Um, property can only, a land, land and houses can only be owned by citizens. They can be rented though by people we call medics who are the resident um, foreigners. And the medic class is made up of anyone who is either an immigrant or an initial immigrant. Uh, if you're there for something like 10 days or two weeks, you have to register. Um, In the city, or you risk sale into enslavement if you're sort of hiding out in the city. It's made up of people who are multi-generation, like their their grandparents immigrant, because you can't. There's no pathway to citizenship. You're a perennial immigrant or perpetual immigrant. And then there's anybody who is freed from enslavement enters this class as well. So you can have people from ranging from Lysias, um, who whose father was invited to the city of Athens by Pericles to set up a factory. He made, she, they were extremely wealthy. They made shields for the hoplites, and, and they were extremely wealthy, to um, you know, a, formerly, a former enslaved uh, woman from a brothel who is just like making a life, trying to make a life for herself in, in the port of Piraeus. So it can sort of have this vast range of people um, that, that can exist in it. And um, back in the 1970s, when people first started really sort of paying attention to medics in Athens, they basically, they were dismissed in the, like the one book that had really been written on it. He dismisses medic women's like, we're not going to talk with them because they're like an insignificant part of the, the, the population and didn't really impact it. But then if you look at inscriptions over time, the population of medics seems to become more and more women. <laughs> um, and this is probably because one freed slaves, uh, the, the freedom, freeing women from enslavement, because we know that women were targeted more directly in warfare for enslavement. Uh, women and girls for sale into the market. So you're gonna have more women who are enslaved versus men. You're typically gonna kill the men of military age. In a city, when you take it or in battle, you're not gonna leave them alive and enslave them, but you're gonna target and collect women. Uh, And pregnant women were especially valuable because they would be nursing, (laughs) right? And then you could um, have, have a wet nurse. But then you're going to have them freed after they no longer need a nanny uh, in the house or, you know, for various reasons, they'll free them. So they enter into the, pot, to the medic population and there seem to be more and more of them, but also importantly, the laws around citizenship in Athens, which evolved over the course of the fifth and fourth centuries, explicitly target the women, uh, medic women, by trying to exclude them from marriage and exclude them from the ability to have children with citizen men. And so, you don't target laws at a population that doesn't exist. Uh, (laughs) It's just not gonna happen. So we have a lot of inscriptions for women who sort of are on this line between, it's like, we're not sure if they're free immigrants or if they were formerly enslaved. They're clearly no longer slaves because the the inscriptions, there's this group of inscriptions called the Fiala inscriptions, which for decades people have thought they were manumission decrees. But Elizabeth Meyer argued uh, a few years ago that they are more likely actually dedications by people who won lawsuits by people who were trying to claim that they were not really free. So there's a law in Athens that a former owner or anyone actually, uh, it doesn't have to be your former enslaver, it can be any citizen, can say that you are actually only pretending to be free, but you're actually enslaved. And they can turn you in. And if they win the lawsuit, they get half the sale amount from selling you into enslavement um, back. This seems hugely problematic. Yes. And we have evidence of that, like people who did this, like who, like that's how they made their money. And some of them are interesting because um, this one guy, Arista Stegayton, he may actually be the son of a man who was made a citizen. So his parents had been medics because his mother was sold into enslavement according to Demosthenes for pretending to be a citizen. And he and the himself tried to sell his sister (laughs) into enslavement, but his other brother apparently tried to stop him. So like totally (laughs) disreputable. But so there are all these women on these inscriptions. So either they are they won their emancipation case or they won against charges that they were pretending to be free. Um, So they're all in this population. And There are something like 192 women listed on this. I can't remember the exact numbers, like 172 or 192. And they all almost all of them have occupations listed next to them. And they most of them are um, wool workers, textile workers, uh, weavers. And but then there's also women who are clearly working as part of a family business because you've got three people in a row listed as sesame sellers or perfume sellers. So you have like a a man, a woman, and a child. Like this is sort of a small family business, right? But my favorite thing about those inscriptions is that one scholar argued that you couldn't possibly need that many weavers. And so the word weaver must also be code for prostitute. Oh, that's harsh. (laughs) But I was was like, wow, so that means that you need four sex workers per citizen man, in order, like if if like her management, but nobody needs clothing. (laughs) because they imagine a lot of everyone's a prostitute you don't (laughs) (laughs) i mean at the gymnasium
1: you certainly don't need clothing so i can see how we got there yeah
2: i've seen the jerome painting i know they all hang out in the house naked (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) who needs weavers yeah but but it's it's this funny thing right because they all imagine this world where these these wives all live in seclusion in their houses and all they do is sit around with their slaves weaving right it's penelope they're all penelope Um, right but it takes like weeks to make a single like six foot cloth
1: yeah this is people who haven't thought about the complexities of actually weaving I think
2: but this is the other thing too is that we have inscriptions that list people who are seamstresses like why do you need seamstresses (laughs) you're all making your own clothes (laughs) (laughs) you think
0: they're up to something more
2: fun (laughs) yeah
1: right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh,
2: we also have an industry where it's like, you have to make like 300 sails a year and boats need to have new rope rigging and things. Like the, the, the sailors aren't taking the off season and like making ropes. Like that's not what they're doing, <laughs> right? So I'm pretty sure there's industrial scale weaving down in the Piraeus. And a lot of these women, maybe they were enslaved initially, right? So we have this big population of enslaved people who are being brought in to do work. Um, but then at some point they're freed and they enter into the non citizen population. And some of them are having relationships with citizens. And some of them are having relationships with other medics. And some of them are marrying other freed slaves who are also medics. But we have evidence of all of those things going on. But marriage is not banned between citizens and non citizen women until like the 380s. So there's this whole period of starting in 451 where. A, a, A medic woman could not give birth to a citizen child, but they were still in, they were still allowed to marry and they were still having relationships with citizens. And there are a lot of reasons why you would do this in particular citizen uh, inheritance law. You have to, you're required by law to divide your property amongst all of your male children. So if you have two male children, but you're like 50 and your wife dies, or you don't like your wife anymore, as in the case of Pericles, he actually helped his wife find a new husband. He acted as her, <laughs> her curios, and then he married Aspasia because you don't want any more citizen children because you already have two who are going to divide the property. In Pericles' case, his two citizen sons died in the plague, but he had this son by this foreign woman who was his wife, who he petitioned the court um, to make a citizen. And they didn't just make his son a citizen. They made a law that basically said that if your citizen sons die, right, any child that you have by a, another marriage can be made a citizen to inherit. Um, and so we have this whole period during the Peloponnesian War when foreign women's children from marriages with citizen men were being made citizens to, you know, in the emergency situation. And then in 380, they finally just banned marriage because they're not in this crisis of a 30-year war anymore. So it's interesting that the law passes after not just the Peloponnesian War, but a second set of war that we call the Corinthian War that doesn't end until 387. And then all of a sudden, now you've got this law passed. So there must be this population of women who are marrying the citizens. And we always think that this is an elite practice, but the inscriptions tell us that these women are working in shops, you know, as shopkeepers, they're working as tavern keepers, like they're working in family businesses. So, you know, this is probably happening at all levels of society. Because the other thing too is that when the marriage ban is pulled out and the citizenship law is ended in the second century, we uh, start seeing a slew of tombstones, particularly of Milesian women. So they're they're tomb tombless them as Milesian, but they're married to Athenians. <laughs> so, so like it starts happening immediately after <laughs> the law is repealed. <laughs> so they having it's had, all this stuff is happening. There's all this interaction. They're out in the shops. They're working in temples. They're working as your wet nurses. We have these wonderful stories of citizen men. Like in Athens, there was a, a whole slew of tombs that had the word tithe on them. These are citizen people who are making tombs for the woman who was their wet nurse who died. Right. Um, we have one story of a guy who is a citizen man, wealthy. He was in the highest tax bracket. His old wet nurse, she had been freed, she got married, her husband then died. So he had her move back in the house with the family. Right. So sort of all these sort of different relationships. Um, we imagine these elite sort of secluded citizen women and and then. Um, or as, as Pomeroy put it, you know goddesses, wives, um, slaves and whores, but you know really the slaves and whores are sort of the same category. And in, in the public imagination, anybody who's not a married woman is like sort of over here. But we have this they're sort of integrated into all walks of life um, in the city and into the fabric of the economy, whether it's as property um, in the case of the enslaved women or as actual workers in the economy and of the people who actually make the economy run in assets because obviously your citizen wife is not out selling you perfume Um, but you need a woman to sell your wife perfume (laughs) because you can't go buy it from that (laughs) damn straight you do (laughs) (laughs) so you've highlighted really
0: well i think in your work and in that outline that when you go looking for them there are these non-citizen women everywhere and there's just such a huge diversity of experience you know in in terms of the class that they might be said to occupy in terms of whether they were wealthy or whether they were poor, whether they had really tight connections to the citizen body or not. But regardless of where they were as these non-citizen people, as these metics, they were still really vulnerable, weren't
2: they? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there, you know, there are laws that start getting targeted at them um, starting around the four, 451 is like the, the most famous, which is the citizenship law of Pericles the irony being that he had to have a child by a foreign woman made a citizen. Um, But that's the law that basically said that to be a citizen, you have to have two citizen parents. Now, some people have imagined, um, Robin Osborne wrote on this, that when this happened, citizen women's lives got better (laughs) because they were more valuable. But in fact, they probably got worse (laughs) because they were now more valuable. You don't have DNA testing. How do you prove a child is yours? Well, you don't let your wife talk to any man. Um, ever, right? Um, who, who isn't a relative? So you have you so, so you have these laws, and then you have um, the the laws relaxed at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. It's relaxed again later on. Some people think that this law that happened after the Sicilian disaster in 411 was actually a law allowing bigamy, but it's actually just allowing basically seems to be the case where it's just allowing any person who has a child, regardless of of whether the person is a citizen or not is gets to be you have to have one citizen parent because then in 404 they sort of reinforce the law and then you have the the ban and marriage is not till 380. Uh, so what seems to be happening is in the fifth century there seems to be some laxity about the laws and we don't have a lot of evidence one of the biggest problems is we don't have any courtroom documents any courtroom speeches from the fifth century other than like on the mysteries from Andocides and that's like at the tail end Of the fifth century. So we don't have sort of the beef (laughs) of that period. So there's not a lot of evidence for what these women were doing. Most of the women that we see who are medics are actually being represented on the tragic stage. And you see different types of women represented there from the heroic daughter of Heracles, who's going to sacrifice herself to save the city of Athens from like the during the Peloponnesian War period, to people like Andromache, who's enslaved. So there's a sort of a very um, Medea is probably the most famous medic on stage <laughs> um, <Yes>. in Athens, <laughs> out there killing everybody. Um, but she, but what's interesting about the play is that she's invited to Athens, right, to come yes. and help the king. At this period is the beginning of the Peloponnesian War when the law is being relaxed, <laughs> right? and here she is being brought in to help. So it's, it's a very strange thing, but then starting in the fourth century, things seem to be getting more draconian. Like that's when the marriage restrictions are passed and we see a lot of prosecutions. And we have three laws on the books. They variously target medics or the enslaved. So there's a law that if you don't register as a medic and you're reported, you can be taken into custody and sold into enslavement. So you have to register. You have the law for people who are pretending, they say they are pretending to be free, but aren't really. And then you have the ones who run away um, enslaved. So these are three laws that are used basically to police the population um, and to keep them in check. And so you have a, these laws are being more highly enforced. We see in court speeches a lot of accusations of this kind of thing against women. Um, we see citizen women being very precarious as well because if they can't prove who their father was or they can't prove they have no brothers, they have no father, they can't prove who they are, then when this inheritance is stripped from them, it's almost always stripped on the ground that they're not really a citizen. And so what's happening to them? Are they being sold into enslavement right, for pretending to be a citizen? <laughs> so you have all these laws that target them. And I think what's actually happening is that because the inscriptions seem to pick up, we have a lot more tombstones for foreign women in the four centuries. I think we actually have a larger population of foreign women in the city and maybe that's because Athens is the major economic hub of that part of the Aegean um, at this time. Um, and so you have a lot of women. We know women coming from Negara. Um, we have women coming from Corinth. We have women coming from mostly coming from Miletus. And so here we have generations of people coming starting in the 5th century. Some are refugees, so you have refugee families coming. But then also Miletus is slowly losing its port. It had three ports when the city was founded in the 7th century. By the time you get to the Roman period, it's like half a port left because it's like silting up from the river. And so its economy seems to be in shambles (laughs) at various points. And of course, there's always threats of war from over there. So we have this influx of population. Um, and So by the time we get to the 2nd century, we have a huge explosion of Milesian um, women. Um, who are getting 45 of them who are getting married to Athenian citizens um, and like over 400 inscriptions for my women. So I think as the population became more women, and we probably have the population as more free freed women are entering into the population. And so as your medic population becomes less wealthy people being invited into the city to support the economy and more freed, freed women and migrant women coming for work, the laws get more restrictive. And so we, you know, these Fiala inscriptions are almost all from the fourth century. There are over 400 of them extant, but it was a much larger. We're not exactly sure how we got this inscription, but it may have been that in the 320s, the actual dedications themselves were melted down. And so they re recorded the inscriptions, but we're missing hundreds of them. So there are probably a thousand, you know, hundreds, uh, as many as a thousand of these inscribed dedications. That means a lot of court prosecutions of these people. And if our percentage um, just in those 460, so are, you know, it's about 30% women. So, you know, what's the tipping point when men think there are too many women in a space, right? Usually it's one, if there's one woman in the space, there's too many. Uh, Stop, Um, go away. (laughs) You're, you're excluding all the men from the conversation. (laughs) Um,
1: Um, I think this leads us really nicely to like the wrap up question, actually, because we've talked a lot about um, how, this population that's sort of outside the citizenship is having real consequences for how Athens tries to understand itself and how it tries to define itself. And thinking about uh, minority representation within that, or perhaps the least represented in particular ways, is the the study of how poverty is operating in a in a big city like this, where we've got quite a diverse population. We've got lots of people coming in. It's clearly an economic hub. We've got a really large non-citizen population, sometimes being targeted by legislation, sometimes quite severely over long periods of time. How is poverty coming through in the evidence for us in this as well?
2: Yeah, so poverty is actually really hard to study because one, there's like sort of varying definitions of what poverty is. And the other thing is, is that um, how do you identify it? How do you see it, right? So Claire Taylor has done a lot of work on this. She um, recently has been doing more work on gender and poverty. So when it came time, she's editing the cultural history of poverty. And she's like, Rebecca, can you write the chapter on women in poverty? But So, she, so she, she asked me to write it. So it was nice. I could go back and review a lot of the evidence, especially looking at it sort of in the long span of time, like all the way from the earliest representations of women in poverty. And he see it all the way up into the Roman period with Christian texts and Jewish texts and... Um, and et cetera. So that was kind of nice, but the big problem is how do you, how do you do it? So Claire Taylor, um, and then Lucia Ketchet also does poverty in Athens. They sort of divide poverty into two sort of types of poverty. So there's, um, there's actual, you know, economic poverty, right? Sort of the lack of anything. Uh, are we talking about penury, right? Sort of like completely devastatingly poor, no money, or is poverty sort of like below, you know, at a subsistence level or below? Right. So um, economic poverty can have a wide range of definitions, but, you know, you sort of situate it like we can think about in Athens or um, generally in, I think Athens in particular, I don't want to speak to like the whole of the ancient world, but, you know, there is a negative discourse around work. For women in sort of all of our ancient texts, this idea of women who work as somehow inferior, Um, of course, is because this is being written by elite men for the most part. So I don't think the people, women who are working, thought of themselves as lesser or their spouses or or their neighbors and all the people who live with them in the communities. But there is a a negative stigma in a lot of our sources attached to work. In the Athenian sources, working is actually used as evidence in court that you're a foreign so that gives you that sort of idea that the idea that you're a citizen woman and you work that's bad if you're a foreign woman and work that's expected <laughs> right so where how do you find poverty when you have this stigma against work <laughs> can you say that every working woman is therefore technically in economic poverty because she has to work i mean that's a discourse we have in the modern world as way well, you know as well especially like when i was growing up in the seven, you know i was born in 74 And my mom went to work in like, when I started kindergarten in 79, but it was because we were poor. (laughs) Right. My, like the idea the middle-class ideal from the 1950s and stuff is that you only, your wife only worked if she had to, you didn't work if you didn't have to. So we still have this discourse, I think, in a lot of places where working women are working because they're poor. I'm not sure if you can make that equation though, with form populations in a city where they have no choice (laughs) but to work right so there's ideals and there's reality so that's a little difficult to actually say and there are even scientists trying to identify malnutrition in bones Mm. in in art in in bioarchaeology Uh, the problem is is that lacking certain nutrients it could just be a factor of regional diet it can actually be a factor of gender because we do know that in some places women were given different food portions in festivals in the city meat is distributed during a big festival well sometimes you brought the meat home to share with your family but other times you just ate in the public spaces with your friends um, and you didn't share the meat so women aren't getting lots of meat right um, in their diet so you can't it's really hard to tell if you even if you have the right bones left to do the analysis it's hard to tell if your lack of vitamin c (laughs) is because of poverty or if it's because of diet or if it's because of environment, right? We all know that if you're not outside in the sun enough, vitamin D can be a problem, right? So again, the difficulty of actually finding it on the level of the body is even impossible in some cases. But the other type of poverty that Claire and, and Lucia and others talk about is, uh, and this is also in, in the sociology of poverty, um, scholarship in the modern world is social poverty. And here women especially situ- are situated um, because their very existence is sort of dependent on a social network they don't have. That you're only ever one step away from losing your citizenship if you have it, from being caught and sold if you are a free woman um, without proper protection. Like one of the cases that we know of um, from an Athenian context is a woman named Zobia. Again, Aristagitan, this sort of like total jerk. <laughs> like he returns. He returns. <laughs> He's like the return of the repressed. You cannot repress guidance. <laughs> um, but he um, borrowed money from her. So she had eight drachma that she lent him. That's actually quite a lot of money. Um, the medic tax for, for an independent woman is six obols for a year. But she had eight drachma, which um, if you're a female musician, you can get paid uh, as a flu- as an outlaw player. You can make four obols a night. Or if you do a women's festival or you do a funeral or something, you can make four ovals per performance. So eight drachma is not a ridiculous sum of money. And if that's your savings, right, <laughs> for a year, um, you're probably living pretty poor. <laughs> but she lent it to him along with a cloak. Um, whether she willingly lent it to him or not, we don't know. But she tried to get it back from him. <laughs> and that's when he reported her to the the official saying she's actually a runaway slave. Dude, what a douchebag. Right? (laughs) Fortunately for her, though, her sponsor, so every medic in the city has to have a sponsor. Her sponsor stood up for her. (laughs) And the official at the medic office where you pay your fees said, no, she paid. I have her right here listed as having paid her fees. So, you know, we know that there are people out there trying to do that. So you're only sort of like always one step away, maybe, from enslavement. One of the other problems, too, is that, you know, since you can't even tell Poverty in the bones. How do you know if someone died from starvation? You can't always, can't tell. Um, there's a new uh, cemetery that was discovered about six years ago. But anyway, they found thousands of skeletons, no inscriptions. So this is probably a not a wealthy or even middling class grave. And they are slowly starting to publish the results. So um, hopefully we'll find something in there potentially that can help us if we can see patterns over large numbers of bodies or how nutrition shows up or malnutrition shows up maybe we can start to say something but it's even hard to gender bones sometimes if you don't have the right bones if you don't have the hips and if the woman never had children the the hips might not have slid (laughs) like there's just all these sorts of different ways that you can't tell (laughs) from a skeleton. But, but yeah, was so, right, the hips don't lie. The hips don't lie, they don't lie at all. <laughs> but yeah, so poverty can be hard to find, but social poverty is probably endemic in the population of women, not just in Athens, but it's also, we see it in the Roman world. In Christian and Jewish texts, there's a specific concern for widows in the knowledge that once that husband dies, like because the marriages are so mismatched in age typically, you're going to have Widows, lots of widows. And when you're in a world where, you know, the, the Greeks, mainland Greeks and the, and the islands, they're like at war for like 150 years, right? Uh, like the entirety of the fifth century is a history of war uh, and most of the fourth century. So a um, lot of deaths, um, a lot of widows, a lot of orphans. And while the Athenians never did anything about this, we do have inscriptions from other places in the Greek world where there's like, a, after a specific um, war has ended, particularly with the wives of Roman emperors, uh, we see inscriptions from some Greek cities um, where they have set up a fund for orphans or or things like this. So there's a recognition of, of destitution and precarity for these people. And in Jewish contexts, it's what we call relative poverty. So the idea is that the widow and the orphan should be maintained by the community at the level that they were before the death of the, father or the husband or whatever. So they understand the concept of poverty, right? I think this has actually been one of the big problems in poverty studies is they don't focus in on things like gender because they're more concerned. And this goes back to Peter Brown and his work on late antiquity is identifying a class of people called the poor. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just not real. It's a category that someone's made up. Poverty can be all over the place. So this is one of the big problems, though. It's hard to find them, but we can, can't can say that working women are all poor, but we can say that there's a social ideal that women who aren't poor don't work. So that like mm. foreign women work and poor women work, but nobody else. We have a, a text, another speech from the fourth century that actually is about events in the fifth century where the guy is saying that, no, I'm not. My father was a citizen. My mother is not foreign. We were poor. Because my father had been captured in war. And so she sold ribbons and let herself out as a wet nurse. And that's not because she's not a citizen. It's because my father was a war prisoner and we were broke and I was a kid. And so we had to work for that. So there, there, we do have that kind of evidence. But social poverty, I think, is endemic to women uh, in a way that it just isn't. When you cannot own property, right? You can't own land. You can't own a house. Uh, and you can't inherit you have restrictions on inheritance, then you're going to have social poverty. Romans can alleviate this by the fact that women can actually own stuff and and inherit
0: things. (laughs) This is why I chose to study the Romans over the Greeks (laughs) because I think looking at the Athenian context in particular, I would suffer night terrors from how vulnerable so many people in that society were. Yeah,
2: and that's our model for modern democracy, right? (laughs) oh that's idyllic (laughs) yeah i mean i there's a whole slew of i'm doing a new project right now where um i'm basically courting every in tomb inscription i can find in the greek language between like 600 and uh, bce and 400 ce that has a an ethnic marker on it so suggesting that the person is buried somewhere where they didn't come from um who's a woman and then i'm going to identify other zones for analysis Rhodes has hundreds of these things. So there's something going on in Rhodes. But you know, of course, in the period when these inscriptions kick up, this is when they were sort of favored status by the Romans. And so Delos had sort of lost its status as a port, and Rhodes had kicked up. But Miletus is, again, also a fascinating place, because not only do we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents of Milesians leaving and going to Athens, we also have inscription grants um, where they're giving out citizenship like candy. Um, <laughs> uh especially in the second century um there was a whole wall of citizenship grants but they're giving them out to uh Cretan mercenaries in particular because they're worried about the solutions coming from one end <laughs> and so they settle these mercenaries there but they brought their wives um, and their children uh people often think mercenaries travel alone but these ones traveled with their whole families uh, but there are also women on there who are listed by themselves independent so what's going on there like are these Foreign women who are marrying a citizen and so they're being given citizens are these children of a citizen who are now being given citizenship. So there are other places to study this that might make it less sort of zero sum game, like Athens. (laughs) But if you're giving citizenship to women, that's a different level of social structure for women that you just don't see in Athens because we don't even know if you're a, a medic. And your husband is given citizenship there's a raging debate amongst like the seven of us who do this work um about whether or not the wives got citizen status
0: permanently,
2: mm. um, or whether they had temporary citizenship that ended when your spouse died we know that the citizenship grants often read the, the man and his children right so the wife can make citizens
1: which can't be one
2: but we don't know that, right? Because mm. there's some evidence that suggests that, like, what do you do with a guy like Aristaguiton, whose father <laughs> seems to have been a citizen um, and died in debtor's prison? And Aristaguiton is a citizen and his brother is a citizen, but his mother was sold for a failure to register as a medic. So did she, did he get citizenship? the husband gets citizenship? She thought she had citizenship. And then when he died, she lost it. And then why doesn't the daughter have citizenship? If Versa Gaiden can sell his sister, like, <laughs> like so, so there's, the evidence is super confusing. We just don't know. Uh, Josh Sozan, who's one of the other people who like does really good work on laws and medics in the city is trying to study the case of there's a famous banker named Formio in Athens um, who was made a citizen. He had been a slave, but he married the, the um, wife of his former owner who had When he died, he willed his wife to Formio. Uh, What a fascinating triangle. (laughs) Well, well, the part of it is that it's a banking family. And so banks are kept in the family, right? And but Apollodorus, the guy who famously prosecuted Naira, he's the elder son, and he was born before citizenship was granted. And the younger son, Pasicles, was born with citizenship. That's going to be a sibling rivalry. <laughs> well, they decided to divide things, and Pathocles kept the bank, got the bank under Formio. Like, Formio was his guardian, and he's, like, in it. And Apollodorus took the furniture store, and apparently the furniture, he didn't manage it well, and it he went into property. <laughs> so he spends all of his life, like, suing people in the court. Uh, because, of course, of Neira, in this famous case, if she loses, he gets money from selling her. She's, like, 65 at this point, like, super alone. But he sues his stepfather, there are like multiple cases against his stepfather, Forbio, uh, to the point where he lost so badly that he was prevented by Athenian law from suing his stepfather again. But those cases are super interesting because he goes from my mother was seduced by this guy to my mother helped plan my father's murder. Like. <laughs> right? So, but we don't know what her status is and so josh is trying to figure this out um and trying to sort of do some more detailed dive because there's like seven speeches uh two against formio but then apollodorus when he can't sue formio anymore starts suing all his, uh, his like friends and so he's trying to figure this out because he don't know like like could these women keep citizenship we don't even know that like we don't even know at a basic level
0: certainly <laughs> puts a lot status. of
2: pressure on relationships
0: you know if your yeah. citizenship is dependent upon that guy keeping That's- on breathing
2: every day <laughs> and this is why this concept of social poverty is is so important for us to keep on the radar because you are literally one death away right or or a divorce away from not even having citizenship anymore if you had it to begin with yeah <laughs> right like, it sounds like an absolutely terrifying thrill ride through life. <laughs> I, mean, I always try to tell people, like, you know, Athenian, like, I've, I've seen, like, some people say, like, Athenian women had the worst of any women in history. And I'm like, I would I would hate to go that far. I would never say that. But it's hard for me to say they had it good. But who knows? Like, right, lived experience is so hard to find. Well,
0: particularly in this sort of a society where most of the material is in the hands of men and particularly a certain class of
2: men. And inscriptions can tell us names and maybe tell us, you know, how they identified themselves. Did they identify mm. themselves? Like, or how they were identified on their tomb? Like you don't even get to make your own tomb, right? But did you identify as a wife? Did you identify as a polychae? Did you identify as my legion? Did you identify as, you know, as a Parthenos? Or were you identified as these things? That's still pretty minuscule evidence for, for the richness of life. And then of course, like Roman inscriptions, Roman tombs are like so much more forthcoming. Um, Greek tomb standards are like we don't even care how old you were we don't care just name, date and serial number it's like the bare minimum of information like if you get a tomb that has a husband and a father listed it's like gold mine
1: (laughs) (laughs) we've got all the info guys I think it's fascinating because it does make me think about the way in which what we don't know about the way women were relating with each other because it sounds like when we're thinking about ancient Athens, that actually there's probably not a balanced population. It sounds to me like having talked about it with you, that maybe there are more women, just generally speaking, as part of that population living in that city, citizen or otherwise. And potentially there's a whole culture of women's connection with each other that we just haven't been able to trace very effectively.
2: Yeah, because I mean, what's our evidence, right? Just before a eye. <laughs> or or something like, can you take these comic representations of what women get up to when they're um, alone together? Can you take that as evidence? I think you could take it as evidence that they did get up to stuff together, that they were allowed (laughs) to get together. Again, I think this is one of the reasons why I push back so hard on all the scholars who basically, like, again, I understand like wanting to um, talk about sex work in the ancient world and destigmatize it, but they're not actually talking about sex work. They're just identifying people as prostitutes which is a very different thing. Sometimes we're able to actually like, what can you say from a comic play about the life of a sex worker in the city, right? But we, you know, my spouse wrote an article on outlaws players, which have often been conflated with with sex work. And of course, a free outlaws player could choose to do sex work as well. An enslaved outlaws player has no choice. If her owner wants to rent her out for sex, she has no choice, but she's more valuable as an outlaws player. She makes like three times the amount of money for her owner um, or for herself as playing the outlaws. But we know that they had women-only gatherings, right? And so, you know, one of the texts that tells us this is Plato's Symposium, actually. People forget, like, ignore it. like, you have to find these, like, little tiny tidbits. There's, like, these, like, three lines or something where they are trying to decide what to do after the outlaws player has played for the pouring of the—every symposium has to have an outlaws player for the ritual— of initiating a four in the wine. And then they say, well, let's send her to the ladies so the ladies can listen to the player and we'll get to talking. Like, we're not, we're, tonight's not gonna be a music night for us. Tonight's gonna be a, an, an intellectual discussion night. So let's send her to the ladies. Well, who are these ladies? Did they bring their wives with them and the women are hanging out together? Is it the neighbor ladies? Is it just the women of the household? We don't know, but they're clearly thinking of a gathering of women. But also we have these vase paintings, um, which everybody says, oh, these are hetaira, again, this sort of word that has vague meaning, of women together at symposia. And I said, yeah, I argued, yeah, they are hetaira, but they're like women. These are rich women. Because what, one of the most important vases, it has these two women on the top. They're playing katabas right, the game where you throw your grape refuse into a cup, you know, toss it with a cup into a spittoon. And they're gazing down at the the call boy at the bottom and they're calling him Kalos. It's it's not yeah it's not prostitutes like you know courtesans like these are probably rich women like this is a vase that they have it's it's from a woman's tomb in the truscan context but i argued that no this is actually like rich women had this lifestyle too they got together with their friends and they drank too and we have evidence of women's drinking rituals and of course, women went to tombs together to do service to the dead in lots of different cities. Um, we have a lot of evidence for this, Tanagra being one, that there's a lot of evidence for this. But if this is a ritual that women are supposed to perform regularly, and they're going out together to the tombs, and they have to pour libations, and they have to do these things, and they're probably, you know, they have to go out at the day trip. So these are groups of women going places together and doing rituals. So there's a little pieces of evidence all over for like the lives that women had. And these inscriptions, like especially things like the Fiala inscriptions, we can imagine, well, they were prosecuted in court, but we also can imagine they had jobs that they were probably proud of because this is what they chose to put on the inscription. They chose to say, I'm a weaver, right? I'm I'm a seamstress. I'm a sesame seed seller, right? It's not just an identifier so people know who they are, but also something that they've chosen as a label um, for themselves. So there are places for us to build and imagine Um, what their lives might have been like outside of the the sort of gaze of elite men. But oftentimes you have to read against the evidence or you have to read through the evidence. Like these women that Demosthenes is telling us that Aristagitan is attacking, he's sympathetic to them. But is he correctly representing their situation? Well, who knows if that was really Zobia's life, but he has to create a plausible situation that the members of the jury, who are not going to be rich dudes, (laughs) right, the members of the jury have to think that this is plausible. So we can at least say that it is in the realm of possibility that people lived, had these experiences and lived these lives. So that's, I think, the best we can do, but I think it's a lot more than people think
1: it is. <laughs> right. yeah yeah um, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah more definitely ahead. I want to thank you so
1: much for your time um this has been a really fascinating conversation and delving into the complexities of this kind of stuff has been fantastic um so thank you so much for joining us
2: well thanks so much for having me on it was really great I'm glad we could make it work out